Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It is my belief, Watson, founded upon my experience, that the lowest and vilest alleys in London do not present a more dreadful record of sin than does the smiling and beautiful countryside... Sherlock Holmes, via Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, naturally in the Copper Beaches. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Horniman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knackered. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr. Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You don't want to start culture or anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living Boris here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, September the 14th, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, Conway Hall is owned by South Place Ethical Society. It was first opened in 1929. Uh, The name was chosen in honour of Moncure Daniel Conway, who uh, died in 1907. He was uh, an anti-slavery advocate, outspoken supporter of free thought, and a biographer of Thomas Paine. And we are here in his library, which is an impressive affair indeed. And uh, with me here are Sid Rodriguez, who is the Skeptics in the Pub founder and organiser. Skeptics in the Pub are groups which meet and converse in the UK and beyond. They talk about science, history, psychology, philosophy, investigative journalism, and how to examine extraordinary claims of all types. Jeff Marshall is the former holder of the record for visiting all the tube stations in one day, and he's also a London blogger and a filmmaker and a self-confessed transport nerd and he does comedy improv as well that's quite that's a portfolio career if ever there was one james highland is a multi-award winning actor and writer one of those awards is best performer on stage uh, in 2012 and his show fagin's last hour of which he's the writer actor and producer will be touring the uk throughout 2012 with a new sherlock holmes quote inserted in it (laughs) i hope we've impressed hello hello all hello hello Hello. good morning (laughs) 
Well, I've got a kind of a start of term feeling now that the Olympics and Paralympics are gone. Uh, did anybody see the parade, by the way? I caught little bits of it on the news, but uh, what I saw, great. Fantastic. I missed all of it because I was working in here. It, it was a pain trying to get across the, the bridge because everything was cordoned off. Uh, so, But I didn't remind that much. Um, I wasn't there, but my girlfriend, uh, she ha- had at the, where she worked, they had the away day team meeting um, in Trafalgar Square. And while they waited for an hour for everybody to turn up, they had their work meeting and then everybody turned up as part of the parade. I- I'm thinking, I want that boss. That boss that has the meeting by the parade is a nice boss. Oh, and but the point is that she sent me regular pictures on her phone. And every five minutes I got a picture so I could see what was going on. So you got a live feed going on. I mean, the fact that I could watch it on the telly anyway is beside the point. <laughs> but she sent me pictures as she saw it. So. Well, uh, Jeff, let's start with um, some tube-related stuff. Stuff, seeing as how that is definitely your area of expertise. I mean, uh, bef- before we do though, I kind of want to ask you about this record attempt. How does that work? Uh, it seems to me like most commuters are essentially in training for what you did there. You know, when you, you choose your particular place on the tube platform and you know that that's yes. your quickest way onto the next train if you stand here rather than there and don't take the in, kind of take the exit and that will take you through. Yeah, most commuters though aren't. I think people just think it's sitting on trains all day. So the one thing I always explain is that you get out at the end of one line say like Stanmore and you run down the road you know like two miles to Edgware so you have to be quite athletic and fit so it involves a lot of running but you essentially spend all day on trains run about a lot and uh, more often than not it fails because something breaks somewhere and you go home feeling feeling, uh, dejected but once in a while it works So how many attempts have you had to make in order to get this record? Well I did it on my seventh attempt Uh, I'll be doing it again this week it'll be the 21st time around the network so I know know the tube network quite well You do the, uh, the thing that most commuters do when they get onto a tube train that they immediately switch off and turn to a zombie and only switch back on again when it gets to their stop. Does this, does this man look like that's his modus operandi? No, because you're constantly thinking where we're we going next, what carriage do we have to be in next to make the swiftest change and, and you're having to write down where you were at what time and take pictures. So actually there's no, you don't relax at all all day. It's like 16 hours of constant on-the-go mayhem. S- sorry, 16 hours? Well, it used to be 18 and then they took out the East London line that made it easier because that became part of the overground. Now there's no East London line on the tube. It's, uh, it's, o- it's only 16 hours, yeah. <laughs> Which is your uh, favourite tube station? I love. I love. Right, see, I didn't used to have an answer to this, but now I do. Uh, it's Sudbury, uh, Sudbury Town. Um, that, that doesn't exist. That's a fictional tube station, <laughs> especially for this question. It does. It sounds like it's a made-up station from Mornington Crescent. I can show you that Sudbury Town on the Piccadilly line. It's it's um, it's the only tube station that has a barometer uh, on the outside of the station building. It has a lot of antique, lovely old features from many years ago. Where, where is? Can, can you locate Sudbury? I feel terrible because our <laughs> listeners from Sudbury Town are banging the fist onto the it's, table here. It's on the little-used part of the Piccadilly line, going that goes up from Acton up to up to Rainers Lane, sort of in the west of London. It's near, it's near Wembley, Sudbury. James is nodding as though he knew that all along. Yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I love that station. Beautiful. I was just wondering, if you've been to Grange Hill, and does it actually have a massive sausage on a fork that comes out every time you turn, this, turn up to the top? No, no but, but on all the, of the 20 attempts, every time, I promise you, we pass through Grange Hill, the Grange Hill theme tune always gets sung. And there's always a... You can tell the age of people. Do they sing the traditional 1980s version theme tune or the more modern 1990s version? You can tell people's... You, t- you know when people were born by what version of the Grange Hill theme tune they hum. So it sounds as though we've got an entourage going on here as well, a support team with there's, you. There's a team of people, and yeah, there's a bunch of... About six or seven of us, and you know, we all take part. 
you can't go wrong with the 1980s tune though of Grange Hill. No, I mean, it's, no. it really is the, the best one. It's the classic. Yeah, it's. Uh, but yes, that's what I go with. There, there are moments of danger that you see coming and going when you're recording, and just for a moment there, we were flirting, weren't we, with the idea of a sing-along to the Grange Hill theme tune in the library of Conway Hall. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we resisted that. Um, Sid. You can always just cut to the chase and go, wow, 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 wow. <laughs> oh dear, we didn't avoid it after all. <laughs> it actually happened. <laughs> let's, let's talk about uh, Conway Hall, because this, this is a lovely place. Uh, there's no point whatsoever me attempting to describe a library. You know what a library looks like. Um, we have pictures, portraits, I should say, around above the bookshelves, and I'm presuming they might be benefactors or something of the sort. Um, but w- what is this uh, place all about? Could you dig a little deeper into the history for us? Well, um, Conway Hall... Um, uh, is pretty much run by uh, a charity called the South Place Ethical Society, which started out in Finsbury Park as a Unitarian church. Um, and then they had a bit of a, a, a tiz with the religious background of it, so they became a, a secular church, in effect. Um, and then, over time, they moved away from South Place. Um, this site here used to be an ink factory that was bombed in the war. And they basically bought the site and built it as part of their chamber music concerts out on Sundays, which have been going since 1887 in the original... Uh, South Place and Finsbury Park and the concert hall is actually built here to accommodate it so now it's, uh, it works as a charity that uh, talks about secular humanism and ethics and uh, we have courses and we do quite a few music lessons and we have our Sunday concerts which are a staple and all the other time they, they hire, hire it out to uh, people who want to have sort of their own events so we've had people like Muddy Waters play here and uh, Humphrey Littleton recorded two of his albums in the, in the main concert hall here We've had like punk bands like Crass in the 1970s and people having debates and uh, riots outside and protests and those type of things. So we still get the sort of the, the Socialist Workers' Party having meetings here and Marxists meeting here on a regular basis. Um, but the, sort of the library is sort of the, sort of the jewel in the crown, really, because we have the largest humanist and ethical library in the UK. It's actually almost like going back in time to like 1920s um, and being in someone's sort of library in their stately home. Yeah, it reminds me very much of the Athenaeum libraries. <laughs> yeah, it has that feel. So most of the, the pictures you see are portraits of past presidents or benefactors. Um, and we have, even in Redline Square, there are two statues of our two most famous uh, patrons. One's uh, Bertrand Russell. Um, who has his statue uh, just in the corner of Red Lion Square, and uh, Fenner Brockway, who's one of the, the presidents of the society, um, on the other side of the square. So, if I'm understanding this correctly, then this is sort of the, the Uber Village Hall, a very general interest thing, combined with um, secular and, and philosophical, non-religious, um, political thought. Yeah, it's, it's more about three sort of free thinking. So we, we're sort of one of these places that doesn't really turn away people for their beliefs. We basically want everyone to have an equal footing. And obviously, sort of the philosophy of uh, humanism is is the, the vein that runs through the whole whole sort of ethos of the place. We should open up uh, the conversation to do with scepticism, I think. Uh, yeah, it does tie nicely, actually. So sort of the, the whole sort of ethos of scepticism is sort of critically evaluating evidence. So whether it's uh, alternative medicine or bad politics or religious philosophy. Um, so we, we sort of take any subject and we can dissect it and say, you know, is it, is it good or is it bad? Or is it good evidence or bad evidence? And they have a massive argument with it over a few pints in a pub normally. Um, so Skeptics Pub have been running for 
uh, well, since 99, so so 13 years we've been going, um, and we've been sort of having monthly meetups in a pub. Uh, discussing these type of topics. My, my understanding of, of skept- my limited understanding of scepticism is that it's it sort of moved through phases through history, and certainly way back, the idea of a refusal to decide essentially was uh, regarded perhaps by the, the ancient Greeks as being the key to tranquility and and calmness and so forth. But then later on, it's been used as a tool to get to a right answer for, for things. Do you sort of recognise that, or where, where do you fall into um, that movement? Uh, I sort of, yeah, I do fall into all the scientific scepticism part of it. So, you know, everything's provisional, which is worrying for a lot of people because a lot of people just want a definite answer, yes or no. But we know things are a bit more complicated than that in the long run. Um, that sounds potentially <laughs> extremely annoying to anybody who's trying to come up with an answer because you're going to be going, well, you can't really be sure that that's the case. But we, but we can also say that there are certain aspects of it that are definitely the case because we've got enough evidence there to base this. It's almost definitely true. I love that. I just wanted to add, I wanted to know whether you have like a set agenda of things to talk about or whether you just pitch up and go, so what's on your mind uh, this week? Sometimes it's just better not knowing because if we knew everything in life, then I think life would be a little bit boring. So I love the fact that it's all open-ended. Does this appeal to you, James, as a way of thinking? Personally, I think it's a very healthy way to approach life, to be sceptical. I think the best scientists in the world are sceptical. Um, without evidence, you know, we cannot define who we are, what we are, where we're from. And the fact that we're still finding that out is is a healthy thing. And uh, like my friend said here, you know, if we did have all the answers, where would that leave us? Um, it would make us seem pretty egocentric uh, to begin with, you know, in the first instance. But at the end of the day, um, keep searching. That's what it allows us to do. Just keep searching. And didn't Stephen Hawking in, in the opening ceremony of the Paralympics they keep asking questions as well? That's kind of, it's kind of uh, it's a similar thing to what he was saying, wasn't it? You know, that's a beautiful tie-in. Yeah, you brought, <laughs> us, you brought see, us. See what I did there? Seamless. Because <laughs> somehow we had to get to TFL keeping wheelchair ramps after the games, and I, I, I couldn't want for a better. Well, look, um, J- Jeff. This, if anyone's area includes this, then it's you. The story here is what exactly? They've uh, TFL um, at I think it's sixteen key stations during the Olympics, the two weeks in between the Paralympics. Had um, this is not the raised platforms which they installed, but they had staff to actually have ramps at stations where people um, with uh, accessibility issues could get on and off to the train when there was a raised uh, like a gap. And they and they've suddenly gone, oh, this is a good idea. Why don't we uh, keep these for a bit, maybe? And they seem to be teasing us by going, we'll keep them, but maybe we won't keep them forever. And it's kind of like I don't know. I think they're stuck between. A rock and a hard place, as in you're clearly dealing with a system that is over a hundred years old that was never designed, you know, for people. It's not just wheelchair users; it's just like it's like mums with buggies, you know, find that really useful. And of course, in the modern age, you have to say that you are uh, accessible to all. But I bet really there's somebody in in the depths of TFL that's a grumpy old curmudgeon <laughs> who wishes that only able-bodied peoples could uh, would just use the system because it costs a lot of money and a lot of effort, you know, to make it accessible to all. So, well, okay, so I'm a little confused in the thinking here then um, because uh, clearly there was a very different attitude towards disability a hundred years ago we were still putting people into asylums and then going and paying to go and laugh at them where mental disability was concerned but we most surely had mothers or nannies with buggies so it surprises me that that but what's the idea here is is TfL expecting that uh, all disabled people who require additional access are going to evaporate after the Olympic spirit has deserted the city well what happened was uh, the money 
that was available for the uh, Olympics and Paralympics was obviously partly used to pay for people to help assist people with any form of disability on getting on and off the tubes but now that money has gone because it's gone with the Paralympics and Olympics those people are no longer available because there's no money to pay them so it's not the ramps that are going it's the people to put the ramps there it is indeed the people that put the ramps there Um, so the question is do we have the people or do we have the ramps or could we not have both Uh, I think it's absolutely important that we have access to all uh, tube stations for all people otherwise what kind of a society are we living there living in i mean is this uh, not a, you know one of the best cities in the world should it not be uh, a city that enables everyone to get through it the way they want to get through it with ease and without discomfort i almost come at it from a, a very simple rights based uh, viewpoint which is that we, well, we've heard all these stories recently about people being literally kicked off buses wheelchair users attempting to get on and having their their legs kicked out from between the door now i know that tfl's taken uh, action on that but surely this is all part of the same thing people have to be able to get on and off transport regardless of uh, their uh, circumstances yeah from sort of the disabled people i know it, it takes a lot more planning to actually get around in london obviously this was a bit more of a godsend having sort of more ramps and stuff at tube stations but Usually it's just for the ones that have big events where it's very, very busy. Uh, most of the other people I know who, who do use public transport and tubes, they just have to plan their day and make sure that they can coordinate it so they can get around. So for, for a lot of the disabled people that I know, they say it's not a problem because they know what their routine is to be planned. So how does this work then where a story like this is concerned? Do they have to phone up and say, can you be there with the ramp or do they just know oh, Bob, Bob's there with the ramp today? It's usually they have to phone ahead so they basically plan their, their route to get to work or wherever their destination is and they can work out which are the ones that have disabled access and which ones they need to phone up and get ramps in. So it's a lot of planning and obviously it's, you know, they, they, know, they know how to go through this routine. Uh, but obviously for the Olympics, because it's just been so busy, you need to have extra resources to make that possible. Where do you actually stand on this then? It, it sounds as though it's more or less feasible with a bit of uh, forward planning. Is that an acceptable position? Um, that's one, one way of dealing in it, but obviously it's not going to suit everyone because there are going to be stations that are impossible to make or, or very difficult to make accessible um, just because of the way that was, they were built in the past. Um, but it's not an ideal situation. Obviously, the, the ideal situation was having all of the stations accessible, but the cost burden will probably just be too much. I'm going to say something slightly controversial here on purpose and ask a rhetorical question, and that is... I, was I, I do love it when people introduce <laughs> so I'm now going to be particularly interesting. <laughs> I was going to say, apart from the last few weeks with the Paralympics, when was the last time you actually saw um, uh, somebody in a wheelchair using the train? Because what I find happens, and I speak to friends of mine that are commuters, is that ever since TfL you know, produced tube maps with little wheelchair blobs on them saying these stations are accessible, what it actually does is encourage mothers with children and their buggies and their complete, you know, almost tanks you know, that to, to come along. And I've, and I've spoken to friends and commuters who say if a mother with a child gets on then everybody gives them a, like a devil stare of like, oh god, you're taking up the space of three people. But if someone with a wheelchair gets on everybody goes, ooh, and they're a lot more forgiving and for some reason, you know, a wheelchair user is, is far more um, accepted than a mother with a child. And I just think that the mother with children is actually um, or father, uh, families with children and buggies are, are actually the majority of users who take advantage of, of the accessibility. Good, good distinction there as well with the parent gender. Uh, but uh, I've heard precisely the opposite where buses are concerned that the mothers with 
I know, I've jumped into the trap myself. <laughs> Parents with children are sort of seen as the, the rightful owners of that little bit of bus in the middle there. And a wheelchair user is seen as being an, an annoyance and an, uh, somebody... What is being said by not having money to provide access to tubes and other forms of public transport? What is being said to the disabled? How would you take it? I mean, it's, it's, it's insulting. Well, I think we, even as we're focusing on terminology, I know that the disabled is sometimes a term that it's, is itself frowned on precisely because it seems to uh, discriminate and, and to set people in two sets, you know, the, the able-bodied and, and the disabled. And of course, disabled, we've, that's one of the joys of the Paralympics is that we've seen all these people with various forms of disability and what a huge a variety of disabilities there are. Well, let's be honest. The human animal is intrinsically selfish and it will only do what it needs to do for itself at the end of the day. And whatever concerns one particular human animal may not concern the other. But as long as they get what they need and what they want. So those in power, as long as they get what they need and what they want you know, then that's okay. Well, no, we've got to take exception to that, surely. Isn't that what the uh, various authorities are there for, to ensure that it's not just individuals getting what they want? It should be uh, even across the board. It should be. It always should be, but unfortunately it isn't. And uh, thank goodness we have programmes like this where we can actually discuss it and say what's right, what's wrong, and what should be done. We are just naturally selfish. Um, I'll take it away. I'll keep it on transport, but away from the tube slightly, and just say that... um, because uh, cycling was also a big thing, you know, and it was, uh, because the Olympics have made cycling very popular in London. I used to cycle into work. I've also got the train to work, and I also sometimes just get the tube and, and walk. And I would say that when I'm a when I'm walking a pedestrian, then I, under my breath, I swear at the cyclist that sort of cut through red traffic lights. When I'm a cyclist, I'll do that myself. And when I'm driving or something, then I moan at all the cyclists. So actually, I just become so selfish that everybody else is to blame when I'm using a mode of transport that everybody else isn't. And that's what we need to get out of realizing that we're all equal when we're all level I think I'll probably use the old British Rail moniker we're getting there <laughs> do you think we are um, yeah otherwise it'll be everything, everything's uh, improvements on improvements so eventually we'll all get there it's just the time scales yeah. the core of this problem unless I'm wrong about this seems to be ancient infrastructure right in the middle of the city well that's why it will happen but it just won't happen in the next two years five years ten years it might literally be 50 years to 100 years until everywhere in london is accessible it will slowly happen do you think so? It seems to me like when when some of these big projects were put in, it's, it all happened under the Victorian in Victorian times, didn't it? The big sewers, the, the underground, starting some of these massive construction projects. Um, it, it seems that it's going to re- take something um, huge for, to to spur anybody on to make these changes. Well, like the Olympics and the Paralympics has has given us a, a kickstart, and it, but it hasn't. They're going to take the ramps away. Well, no, but see, I, I don't think they will. I, I will go on record as saying that I think they will leave the ramps in place and we will see slowly i don't mean slowly more more accessible options coming coming to london but as sid says it just it won't it won't be won't be quick it will be slow but what we need is we need people obviously not only the people who want to use the ramps but those who don't need them as well to stand up and say hey this has to remain they have to stay you know, we need uh, what is classified as able-bodied people to speak up and speak up, you know, in, in the multitude. Otherwise, things won't get done. Those in power will not listen. And that's always been the case. Unless you speak up collectively, nothing will be done. It can't just be the minority that speaks. It has to be those it doesn't affect. 
Well, as far as we're able, I think we've done some some speaking up there. We can stay, though, with the subject of getting into London. Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. I love the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced that his fatigued. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I mean, Boris is a very colourful fellow, and this is a colourful idea, uh, but uh, one that will affect, affect the environment detrimentally. Basically, in a nutshell, he wants to put an airport in the middle of the Thames estuary. Uh, Sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? Well, it is really a kind of joke, but um, in fact, that's what he actually wants to do. Unfortunately, it will cost billions of pounds and will affect the environment insofar as it will definitely mess with the, uh, the birds that live close by. Uh, of which they are very important to this particular space and they have been there for uh, millennia really but that's it in a nutshell Boris wants to solve the problem of air travel in London by building a floating airport Yes, and there's an impressive artist's mock-up of it they've got the sun set just right there so that they can make a nuclear power plant in the middle of the estuary look quite attractive uh, and it's, it looks as though it's got perhaps two runways there and it's float- this is the Boris Island idea I think that we've seen before the toss-up at the moment seems to be between this uh, third runway which looks increasingly likely to my eyes given what's been going on with the cabinet reshuffle there's a, f- a few sort of half-hearted suggestions of in- increasing Stansted or so- nobody seems to really care too much for that idea and then there's this uh, <laughs> Bond villain style base floating in the estuary um, I'm just surprised that in the artist picture there's no cable car that actually goes out to it for you, for you, to, for you, for you to get there um, no but seriously I'm not opposed to the idea except for the fact that I think that it wouldn't be so bad if they said right you know we'll and this sounds crazy you know but we'll lose say Heathrow airport and we'll put all the traffic here but what will happen is that they'll just build that airport and then a hundred years time someone else will go and now we need something else and then London will just become this sort of surrounded by you know more and more airports and you know we're not actually giving anything back we're just taking so it'll be nice to have some balance does that make sense i think so yeah and <laughs> in a very practical way it doesn't seem particularly easy to get from a estuary airport to heathrow airport presumably you'd want some connections uh james highland is is either asking me to go under the table or he's suggesting a, an underground rail of some sort <laughs> Well, that's what's been suggested. Uh, there will be no overground or bridge. It will all be underground. The, the means of getting there will be uh, a special tube system. that Which we could run alongside the new super sewer. That, that would be more or less the same direction, I think. <laughs> yes, I think, I think it probably would. Um, the whole thing seems a bit like a sewer of an idea, if you don't mind me uh, sort of connecting the two, um, to be frank. Um, and this kind of idea worries me. And I'll tell you why. And it goes back to what I was speaking about earlier in terms of selfishness, because this is not taking into consideration the bigger picture. And what I mean by the bigger picture in this case is the environment. We are not, and I must bring this in, we are not the only creatures that exist on this planet, even though we think we are, even though we think we own the planet, you know. Um, We are a human animal. And we share the planet. And in this particular place, we share this land with these birds. And it's not ours to take. It's not ours to manipulate. Just because we keep spreading and getting higher in number, what is it, 7 billion now of us? You know, I mean, the Earth can only really support 3 billion. And there was, that, and there was 3 billion in Dickens' time, in uh, the Victorian time. So really, at the end of the day, we need to 
rein it in. We need to step back and uh, really have a little think about, you know, the land we are now utilising for our own ends and start, really start taking into consideration those other creatures who share the planet with us. So flatten the village uh, near, near Heathrow Airport and uh, stick another runway in there? Is that where you were thinking takes you? <laughs> I wasn't thinking that at all. I'm not saying I have the answers, but I, but I do not think uh, an appropriate answer is to utilise more land, especially land which is, ha- has been used uh, by wildlife for many, many centuries. It will be so detrimental... It will destroy their homes. Uh, They will not be able to breed uh, and they will suffocate under the pollution of uh, man's habitation of this particular place. Interesting to think what we're doing to our own uh, lungs as well in in that case. Sid, where do you stand on this whole airport business? I actually quite like the idea of uh, using sort of technical technological innovation to come up with uh, good ideas to get yourself out of a problem because uh, I'm not a big fan of Heathrow Airport I think they should just flatten it and move it somewhere else and, and moving it offshore in effect solves half those problems well, why, why do you think they should do that to Heathrow Airport? Because uh, the amount of planes that are coming through obviously the noise pollution over land is much much higher than noise pollution over sea so if you've got stuff taking off over sea like in New York JFK Airport and LaGuardia they're both over sea so the noise pollution is much much less and it's less detrimental to, to wildlife in that sense. Uh, so having it oversee as a Tracy Island or even further out in, in the English Channel would probably actually have a lot more benefits than, than negatives. Um, uh, and linking up as well, and obviously the, the building on, on sea is probably just as easy as, you know, it's probably easier than building on land, I think. And uh, they build oil rigs and things, you probably actually use old, uh, disuse oil rigs, or, e- or even moving the airport f- further north, probably to Norfolk, uh, and having a fast line that goes straight out from Liverpool Street to Norwich or somewhere like that and actually having it way out the way. So even though it's quicker to get to from central London, probably no different than it would be from getting to Heathrow, I expect. Um, do, do you buy into all these arguments that we're making uh, fools of ourselves on the world airport stage that we're, we're potentially losing business because people don't want to come to our clumsy uh, transport infrastructure here? Um, I think that's probably part of it and we just need better ideas to make everything more efficient, you know. Um, Someone actually saying that is is a bit unfortunate that Germany actually lost the war because they managed to sort out their infrastructure <laughs> because the whole place was pretty much bombed and they could actually sort out their infrastructure as with, with the UK and, that, and especially London. You get so, it's so old and everything's built up so slowly with little tiny one-lane roads that it makes everything a bit of a nightmare. I mean, it's nice to be controversial once in a while, of course, on this show. In all seriousness, this whole airport thing has given Boris Johnson, it seems, the springboard he needed to... Well, if you if you believe... The, the speculation about it, he is now eyeing up the PM's position, certainly in the Tory leadership, perhaps as Prime Minister. Let's get down to brass tacks. Do you believe this? <laughs> I just think it's a bit of a, bit of a PR stunt, to tell you the truth. I think because the Olympics have gone quite well, it's always somewhere to sort of bump up your own, your own ego for a little bit. Uh, but I don't think we'll actually he'll get anywhere close. On, on what grounds? Um, I don't think he's a credible leader. He's, I don't think he's been very good for London either, so... Um, I, I voted for Ken, not Boris, but I tell you what, Boris is really good at, and that's being Boris, you know, and just making people believe, and people forget that he's there to do a job, and not just to kind of, you know, be like the fun face of London that says all the right things with the right sound bites at the right times, and scarily, I can imagine him 
running for parliament and and making a go of it whether he'll get that I, I don't know but i i think there is substance to that story yes i'm inclined to agree with you that's <laughs> essentially the job of a politician at whatever level isn't it to, to turn up and say the right things at the right moment god forbid that they should actually come up with uh, policies we, and principles and see, see things through we need to say the right things but then also back it up with actual actions that actually you know you that you that you see through so you have to be good at both those things and he's good at one of them and not the other <laughs> well at the end of the day, so to use that phrase again, but Boris, like any other politician, um, you know, it has to consider his career. And so the, the crown, if you like, for any politician is the job of the prime minister. So it's not a surprise to me if it, if it is indeed true. And uh, seeing where he is at the moment, wanting to ride the possible you know, wave of the Olympic success and the Paralympic success, if I was in his position, I would certainly take, you know, take, take the opportunity to do that. Yeah, Boris is quite interesting as a, as a statesman because obviously he was um, sort of the MP for, for Henley on Thames and then moved into being mayor and didn't think he'd be mayor and he, he became mayor. Um, so you know, he, he's. I think he's far cleverer than people make him out to be. He's not the bumbling Boris. He, he has a lot of substance, and he's smart enough to actually know, you know, who to talk to, and he probably knows all the right people, and that's why he's got where he ha- where he has. So never underestimate, underestimate him. I, I'd say um, he's done. Uh, he's been more successful than than most people would have imagined, even if everything was about whiff waff and ping pong to start off with. Um, so from 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 little balls do big things. So, say again from from little ping pong balls i should say big things big things come uh, and develop so <laughs> God, i'm not sure whether to call us all performers because i think part of your work as well sid is, is performance to some degree as chair of discussions and so forth but his performance seems to have been tempered slightly or honed i should say refined i think he's got hold of the idea in the last uh, maybe the last six months that people like his ridiculous phrasing and these these strange way that he goes about uh, putting across ideas with waf being one of the prototypes i think but i've noticed everything he says now he says in an extraordinary way and using um, sort of strange jargon is he becoming a parody of himself it, it doesn't make you wonder whether he actually has a team of advisors that sit around with him in city hall coming up with phrases that you must use this week boris you know here's a wacky thing to say and that'll get people's attention i don't i don't know how i don't know how he gets away with it if if poor old nick clegg had been caught dangling on a wire in in victoria park he would have been ridiculed to death instead boris somehow you know makes positives out of it i I don't know how he does it he's one man on stage and it it does seem to me that he goes through a sort of a bertie worcester (laughs) phrase book or something every now and again and and creams the best from it (laughs) james highland obviously you've been on stage for the best part of the year and you've been well this accolade that you have uh, received the the best performer on stage 2012 and you've been up against some massive performances uh yeah a a, a round of applause going on silently around the table here (laughs) and you've been up against matilda for example a phenomenal production what what else was on in 2012 that you've contested and defeated well um the uh, the award in which i was in competition with uh, the the royal shakespeare company's matilda the musical and also the national theater's uh, one man two governors was the london theater award 2012 and uh, basically it was them and a few others as well and 
that was uh, I was very honoured to uh, to be part of that and to be nominated for that, especially because uh, my production company, Brother Wolf, has a core membership of three, <laughs> and uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, which is a company that I love and have worked with uh, several times, as a company of seven hundred plus. So it, it really is a David and Goliath scenario, and uh, we're all all three of us <laughs> are very very proud <laughs> to have got to that particular place and um and and basically going back to uh you know the show uh, that did that that was a christmas carol as told by jacob marley deceased which was my second dickens adaptation uh it's a one-man show and the second is fagan's last hour which is based on oliver twist and that particular show will be starting the second leg of its uh, 2012 uk tour as part of the uh, bicentenary celebrations for charles dickens charles dickens it's showing today at Tara Theatre, which is in Ellsfield, um, in London. And that will be 7.30pm uh, start. So do come along. It's, it's an hour long, literally. It's Fagan's last hour. And it's inspired by Chapter 52 of the novel Oliver Twist, uh, which is called Fagan's Last Night Alive, in which Fagan spends his last few minutes in the condemned man's cell, basically on death row before he's hanged. And that's where we begin with the show. From 7am to 8am, you're watching him basically under extreme distress just before he's put to death. That's a, a brilliant idea, and uh, I must say Fagin's one of those characters who, of course, we all know, but I've, I can't think of a, a representation of him outside of the, the whole Oliver experience. Has this been done before, or is this entirely new? Um, this is entirely new in this context. Uh, in fact, there are very few, if any, filmic representations of Fagin that are true to the novel um, although there are some superb performances of course there's uh, uh, Alec Guinness's famous portrayal and controversial portrayal in David Lean's exemplary uh, film uh, which I think is the best filmic adaptation for my money and there's many others there's uh, Ben's, Ben Kingsley's excellent portrayal in Roman Polanski's version um, but there, there are always edges to the character which are softened. Not so much in um, the David Lean version, which is why I like it so much. Because at the end of the day, Fagan is a disgusting human being. He really is. He's despicable. He has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. And, um, and also, it's, it's mainly to do with the fact that because it's never been done uh, in terms of uh, being true to the source material... Um, which I think is a good reason to see the show. Uh, I personally love the musical, Oliver the Musical. I think it's a terrific piece of entertainment, but it's, uh, it's catered for children and, and everyone, really, whereas this one has a rating of 12+, plus, primarily because it involves all the characters from the novel as they're meant to be seen, such as Nancy, the prostitute, uh, Fagan, the receiver of stolen goods, and there's also inferred paedophilia in the novel, too. And, of course, there is an even worse character than, uh, than Fagan, which is Bill Sykes, some would say, who is a robber, and a murderer. Good wholesome family <laughs> entertainment. <laughs> yes, you listen to the Londonist podcast where we talk about disgusting people. Sorry, all, I chuckled because all I thought of at that moment... Well, we've been doing politics earlier. <laughs> <laughs> but all I thought at that moment is that, is that Boris shouldn't run for PM, Boris should play Fagan instead, and that, 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 that image just really made me smile for some reason. <laughs> I, well, I think it, it, it is a, a particularly difficult one to put on stage, I should imagine, isn't it? Because there's immediately this uh, risk of accusations of anti-Semitism that's, that's got to go hand-in-hand hand with any portrayal of a, a character of this sort. 
Yes, because you know, I do sort of know that sort of Fagan is portrayed as a as a, a, a Jewish robber or that type of thing. So there are these sort of undercurrents that people don't really uh, pick up on when they've seen the musical version. And indeed, written at a time when anti-Semitism was rife, you know, yeah, it wasn't like, even labelled yeah. as such. And, and, and almost certainly, the choice of this character and making him Jewish was intended to increase his evilness. The accusation of anti-Semitism was directed at Dickens. Uh, Dickens's first uh, version of the novel, which used the words the Jew repeatedly to such an extent that uh, certain members of the Jewish community took exception and rightfully so because the repetitious use of those two words in itself uh, makes it seem that you know as something derogatory however personally I think the uh, the picture that 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 Dickens is uh, putting together is rather different he's he's in my opinion he's actually trying to say that the reason one of the reasons that fagin is put to death for example is specifically because he is an ethnic minority an ethnic undesirable and this unfortunately relates and which is what which is so uh, interesting about Dick dickens it resonates today for example in other in certain states of america the death penalty still stands capital punishment is still in operation and unfortunately it does seem uh, on average uh, to be reserved for I'm taking what you say to mean possibly non-white people f- feature much more are represented much more heavily than they should be on death row. Is that is that a, f- a fair summary? That is uh, what I'm saying, and uh, I think that's the very very sad um, uh, fact of of the death penalty. And uh, and again, uh, I think this is what what Dickens is and was trying to say. Um, for instance, Fagan is 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 put to death. For crime that isn't a capital offence, so in effect he's being discarded as though he were vermin, and certain members of the poor, in fact most of the poor, were considered vermin, uh, particularly the ethnic minorities, because people just didn't want them around, and so rather than being anti-Semitic, Dickens is saying, "Hey, wait a minute, let's look at this and look at it again. Let's put it under the microscope and see what's actually happening." For example, his first novel, uh, The Pickwick Papers, was dealing with a, with a variety of middle-class, fairly comical characters, and the middle to upper classes really enjoyed this. But when he produced his follow-up novel, which was Oliver Twist, people were disgusted. They were disgusted with the fact that he was telling the stories of awful people, or presumably awful people. Uh, Nancy, of course, is not as clear-cut. You know, she is a criminal. Yet she has redeeming qualities. Even under the duress of societal influence, she has a redeeming quality. And, and so he's not labelling all of these characters as disgusting. They do have some irredeemable qualities. And so what is he saying by way of this? He's saying, look at, look at it again. Look at the bigger picture. You know, see what these people really are. See where they're coming from and see what's making them the way they are and why they're doing what they are. Deep. 
deep. It certainly is. Well, I, that sounds like a fascinating... Mean, it's easy to say, of course, when I, when I have a guest here to say, oh, that sounds like a fascinating... Pro- I've, I've signed me up. I, I want to go and see it. I, what I'm particularly interested in is, is your choice of uh, characters there. And I, uh, with that, I, I sort of don't want to rush you into telling me about the next project because that's always a difficult question when you're fully engrossed in the in the project you're on. But I'd be very interested to, to see if you go along a, a similar sort of route to see who you choose the next time, which character from literature might feature... Uh, if that's something you choose to do, some very interesting choices there. We'll be, uh, of course, reminding uh, websites and um, phone numbers and uh, how to sing Grange Hill, uh, Grange Hill with Jeff <laughs> as he dashes by. Um, we've just very briefly got time for the story that appeared on Londonist.com. What can London look forward to now? The games are over, and I wondered if you have any suggestions as to what uh, London can look forward to other than meetings of sceptics in the pub and performances uh, around Fagin. Jeff? London needs uh, a sports day. <laughs> it's simple as that. There was a great um, moment, wasn't it, the week before the Olympics started where there was a big hoo-ha about the fact that the Olympics committee said you couldn't use the word 2012 or I- Olympics in, in some of the branding. And, and one London radio station started referring to it as the big school sports day. And at that time I remember thinking, no, that's, that's a good name. So why not, you know, if everybody is... Um, want lusting after some, you know, sort of, you know, athletic action or whatever. Let's, what, and Boris could be the man to do it. Don't become PM Boris. Don't be mayor. Why not organize, or organize in your bl- blustering, bubbly fashion some kind of annual event in London where, uh, you know, the public can take part in some kind of London Sports Day. That would be my suggestion. <laughs> and would it be on the scale that we've just seen, or are you after something a little more egg and spoony? Uh, I think you need something where I think people, regular Joe public, can go and take part if they want to, because I think a lot of people thought, that looks fun. I know I did. Um, I wanted to go and have a game of um, wheelchair basketball, even though I'm not, I'm not a wheelchair user. I thought, wouldn't that be great to go and have a go at doing that? And part of me wants to really go and do that. So why not organise games that everybody can play? It's tough to tough to argue with that. If only we had a venue to... Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got sort of quite like the idea of getting... You know, the whole Parliament's been out for the whole summer and they should actually take part in it. So I want them to have a massive you know, egg and spoon race <laughs> in the middle of High Park or maybe you know, some sack racing uh, just to kick off the whole new games and then we can move on from there. I'm not sure if I heard you right. Are you saying you want the, the members of Parliament to do that? Yeah, I think they should you know, they, they should speak for our country if they're running it. They should be the first people to take part in it. And, uh, and that they'll be with, with us on that, I hope. I sort of feel that what Clegg and Cameron are doing is a, a three-legged race. <laughs> Both, both hampered and hindered by being tied to the other. I'm sure there's a cartoon character turning up there straight away, isn't there? So. Uh, James, what can London look forward to now the games are over? Well, I think uh, London should look forward to, you know, a celebration or continuing celebration of what, what makes it great and what made the Paralympics so terrific and also the Olympics so great, which was a sense of community, a celebration Uh, without sounding corny because it it may sound corny to some but a celebration of humans and what's good about us and that really happens Um, this does coincide with a letter I wrote to the mayor uh, I made a suggestion. Oh, yes, I wanted to know about your letter to the mayor. I nearly forgot. <laughs> oh, no worries at all. I, 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 I wrote to him and uh, I basically said, and it was in conjunction with St George's Day, how we can make this more of a national celebration. And I said, why not? Why not make St George's Day the city day? And what I mean by that, you know, make it London Day. Make it Manchester Day. Make it Liverpool Day. So whatever city you're in, it becomes Liverpool Day. 
It becomes Manchester Day. It becomes London Day. And my, my idea is to celebrate all that's great about that particular city, you know, within that city, for that city, by the members of that city. And what that means is all the people... In all, their, in, all their, in all their diversity, you know, because I think some people in London have a sense that St. George's Day doesn't offer that. So let's find something that does. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's been quite a long time since we had sort of the, you know, the, the grand Victorian exhibits and exhibitions of, you know, the 1800s. And we should really have like a mind Olympi- Olympiad to follow up because obviously we have the physical side of it but we have we have all the best scientists and they're all popping up we have your you have your your, your brian coxes and your jim alkalilis and you have stephen hawkins and uh your stephen fries and all these celebs who are big brained people and i think they should kick off a, a mind olympiad for for the uk so what are you imagining sort of invent a perpetual motion machine go <laughs> I think it's more, more of like sort of a, a, a national celebration of technology and um, of clever stuff of our universities and what they do. And um, half the you know, satellites in space have had parts developed by British companies and things like that. And um, just just all sort of our technological moving things forward is something we should celebrate and maybe do some chess boxing as well. But, but James is right. I think St George's Day is the only national day that isn't a, a public holiday. Am I correct in thinking mm. right? So, so mm. let's make... St George's Day, a public holiday. Put it in October when, when we're a bit low on bank holidays and everybody could do with a day off and turn it into a day of, of us doing something. I think the best thing about James's idea is that we'll at last know what St George's Day is for. All of the associations with St George's Day really are a little bit negative, I think, at the moment, uh, particularly where the, the flag and sort of nationalist uh, unpleasantness is concerned. So, yeah, a chance to rejuvenate that, I think, would be very welcome. I mean, one of the terrific things about St George's Day is that it falls on Shakespeare's birthday and death. Death Day, you know, and, and what a what and Death Day, yeah. And so what a what a glorious way to start off the celebration to celebrate our greatest player out playwright um, and you know in conjunction with Dickens. I think they're they're two they're our they're, they're both our, our best writers in my opinion, and to, to celebrate them both and everything that's great about the whole of England, the whole of England, and that's why I say make make it the City Day. In a word, what did the mayor say? He didn't reply. He got his assistant to reply, which was lovely. Uh, They basically said, no, we can't do that because we already have a few things going on in London and they're enough. And that's good. Goodbye. (laughs) They didn't quite say it like that, but uh, that's what they said. (laughs) Well, there's uh, just time before the quiz, which I know Jeff in particular is looking forward to. Just time to remind you that here at Londoness, we are keen to give you free food with which to celebrate whatever you please. You can go to riverford.co.uk forward slash Londonist for a half-price vegetable box. Fresh, seasonal, organic veg, fruit and meat delivered to you for half-price. Thanks to Riverford and Londonist. That uh, address again is riverford.co.uk forward slash Londonist. And uh, it's full of uh, veggie goodness. They look very appetising. We're looking at pictures of them as we speak. Mm. There we go, that's a persuasive uh, sponsorship message, isn't it? Uh, it's time for the quiz. Are you ready? This is a, there's five questions here. We weren't uh, warned about this. Do we, do we have buzzers or is it team? Yeah, no buzzers. Uh, I'm going to come to whoever appears to have an answer. Five questions and it's a, this last week in London type thing based on dates. So here we go. Are you ready, Jeff? No. <laughs> Monday, the 10th of September, 1973. IRA bombs explode at which 
two mainline stations injuring 13 people. Train question should be Jeff's, really, shouldn't it? I wanted to say one was in Manchester, maybe Warrington, almost. This is a London quiz. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, another little-known tube station. Uh, no, James is uh, shrugging. S- Sid, you're still in the game. Um, probably something like King's Cross and Oxford Circus, something like that. Yeah, you've got one out of two, King's Cross. Do you want to go for the other, Jeff? I'll, I'll say Liverpool Street. It's Euston. So I'm going to give you a point, Sid, for that. Um, Tuesday, the 11th of September, 1980. Armed robbers steal almost £1.5 million worth of diamonds from a jewellery shop in... Knightsbridge, West London. Jeff is showing that he knows the answer already. What's the answer, Jeff? <laughs> Sorry, I, I peaked too soon, didn't I? Yes, you, you really did. The, uh, the hall includes a famous stone known as the Marlborough Diamond. What was the Marlborough Diamond worth? I think it's probably about 400,000. You're exactly right. It was exactly 400,000. That's very impressive. The robbers were arrested 11 hours later. They, you weren't part of that in some way. But you seem very precise on that. 12th of September, in which year? The England cricket team beat Australia at the Oval in South London, winning the Ashes for the first time since 1987. What year did that happen? This I do know, and it's quite recent. Is it 2000-something? Because <laughs> I really hope it is. I'm going to say 2004. No. Oh. But you're very close. Oh. 2005. <laughs> 2005. Two, two, it is 2005, yes. Two to Sid. One, two, Jeff. James, we need some action here. Yes. <laughs> you could still uh, level with the, the, the lead scorer at the moment. 13th of September, 1738. Work starts on laying the foundations of the original version of which bridge? Is it London Bridge? What? The original version of London Bridge? No, it goes far further back than that. What year, sir? 1738. Ooh. I don't know. Well, presumably we just guess at a bridge in London, right? We could do it. An educated guess would be... But, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a clue. As far as I know, it's the second bridge in London. Well, up until the 1830s, there are only like four, four bridges. Um, uh, so I would... I'm, uh, Lambeth, guess. No. <laughs> I don't, honestly, I don't know that one. Pick a bridge. Shall we just go through all the bridges? Yeah, Southwark. If you get in fast enough... <laughs> Can you give us a clue? Is it, is it actually in the centre of London, or is it a bit further? It's very, very much in the centre of London, yes. As, as I say, as far as I know, not Chiswick, as far as I know, it's the, the second bridge that London had. 1738. Hmm. Could be wrong about that. Hungerford. Not the Hungerford Bridge. <laughs> We're just going to go through all the bridges. There's, there's, there's one that's Chelsea. staring you in the face, not Westminster. Chelsea. Town. Westminster Bridge. Oh. Sid's there. <laughs> Three to Sid. This is looking good. <laughs> it's, it's really whether James can say face now. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, 14th of September, 1983. Someone who, in her adult life, would go on to become a successful and sometimes controversial recording artist was born in Southgate, North London. Who was it? 14th of September, 1983. Is she still alive today? Is she dead? I think it's Amy Winehouse. I think it's Amy Winehouse. I was gonna, no, that's what I was going for the dead. You, can't, you can't ask me. You know, is well, I was looking for... Oh, I must admit, I, I knew that one, too. Yeah, yeah, in the back of my head, I knew... Can I, I claim that at all? You know, sort I, of I, nick I, it. I want to give James my point. That's but I kind of you, almost <laughs> Right. <laughs> so a, a telepathic second place for, for James, you. then. You uh, Sid, you've uh, come in very far ahead of everyone else with 27 points because there, there was a bonus on that last one. Didn't matter. Good, but you're right, Jeff. That was pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> um, there's just time to mention websites in case people are interested in getting involved in the Skeptics in the Pub conversation, for example. Where, where do they need to be? Which pub? Um, uh, we're, we're based at, um, at the Monarch in Camden, but there are actually four in London now. So there's one in Hackney, uh, there's one in Westminster, there's one in Kingston upon Thames, and uh, obviously the, the first one that existed, which we, we are in the Monarch. But if you want more interesting stuff, it's probably worth going to the Conway Hall website as well. And uh, it's free to go into the library and have a look around and use it on our Wi-Fi as well. Can you remind us of the Conway Hall website? Uh, Conway Hall website is uh, conwayhall.org.uk. And those groups are monthly, I think I'm writing, so. Yeah. Great. And how does it work, by the way? Do you just kind of walk in and grab a drink and off, off you go, chat to whoever's there? Uh, we actually have a speaker each month. So uh, we have a, a, either a talk or a lecture or a PowerPoint presentation or a couple of people. And uh, we basically have a talk, uh, have a beer, have a sit down and then have a Q&A and then everyone else gets on with it. Fantastic. Um, James, your performance is, uh, of course, we've got one this evening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on this evening at Tara Theatre, which is in Ellsfield at 7.30pm. And you can book tickets online or via the following number on 0208 333 um, There's also another another performance in London on the 10th of November at the Arts Depot in uh, North Finchley. And uh, the number for that is 0208 369 But tonight it's at Tara Theatre and here's the website address for the production which is James Highland, that's with a Y, H-Y-L-E-N-D so that's jameshighland.co.uk forward slash Fagan's Last Hour. And of course you can see pictures of uh, James portraying Fagan there as well looking very haunted I must say, as you would under those circumstances Jeff um, am I allowed to plug something as well is that okay uh, what have you got in mind I have I have a, uh, this I don't, I don't know if I can plug things or not on your podcast <laughs> We're, we are looking at a thing that seems to relate to the underground so I'm happy with that <laughs> it's, a, it's an iPhone app that I have developed which is the ultimate travel tool slash guide to getting around in London and you can find that online at stationmasterapp.com www.stationmasterapp.com it's the ultimate everything you want to know about the tube and if ever there was somebody whose advice you should take when it comes to getting around on the tube, surely this, this is the man. It, it would be mine, yes. And what about, you've got a website of your own oh, as well. Uh, Jeff Tech, G-E-O-F-F-T-E-C-H dot co.uk is where I sort of blog and stick up videos and have all manner of crazy, crazy, crazy things. But uh, yes, there you go. Two, well, two, two plugs. Sorry, thanks. Th- thank you very much for joining us here at the Conway Hall Library. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much thank indeed. You. Thank you. She stands, mark of the man. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Sid Rodriguez, Jeff Marshall and James Highland. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Straining for the blue waves calling from the shore.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.